Ladies and gentlemen, hello and welcome to the podcast. We are the Ambassadors at Large. Great to have you with us for this inaugural episode. Uh, This is a foreign policy podcast, and we're going to talk about foreign policy stuff. And every single episode, we are going to pick a different topic, and we're going to delve into it, try and talk about, try and explain it, try and figure out why it matters, why it's even worth talking about. Hopefully, we will enjoy doing this, and hopefully, you will have as much fun, or at least almost as much fun, listening to us do it uh, as, as we have actually uh, doing it. I am your host, Joe Genie, in uh, Washington, D.C. I ha- am a former U.N. correspondent. I have a master's in international affairs from the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, blah, 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 really long title. And uh, I am delighted to be joined today by uh, two of my uh, fellow podcasters from a previous podcast that we all once shared. Uh, Ethan Chang and Ronnie Weiss are on the call. Uh, Ethan, let's start with you because you're further away. Uh, are you not uh, going to men- sorry to sorry to interrupt the intro? Are you not going to mention what that other podcast is and the fact that is it, it has- is it to be to never be named on this show? Is that the- <laughs> it's it's like it's like Voldemort of podcasts? No, that's fine. <laughs> I have no problem. With I, that, I was but- I was going to name drop the other podcast later. The, the, we we had previously name been. Drop- We had previously been on a podcast called Don't Worry About the Government, uh, which is still operating under new management, and you should check it out as well. Um, But uh, but uh, all three of us are here today for the uh, the inauguration of this new podcast. So um, uh, okay, Ronnie, since you put it in, (laughs) let's start with you. Uh, Our listeners presumably have never met you before. Uh, Who are you, and how are you? Oh, so so I'm going to say this whole biography and then go, I'm good. Basically, (laughs) unless you're not good. Uh, I'm Ronnie Weiss. I live in Pleasantville, New York, which is in Westchester County, just north of New York City. Who am I? What do I do? Why am I an ambassador at large? Well, uh, back when I used to travel the world, I've been to every continent except Antarctica. I've been to every country in Europe. I've been around to a lot of places talking to lots of different types of people did you actually make it to every country in europe i thought i thought you still had to do like latvia or something no uh belarus was my last one oh brilliant yeah yep every country and people go what about andorra what about sam yes every country that is a country kosovo (laughs) i thought i thought you were gonna say well those don't count (laughs) but no you can actually count i've been to i've been to all the tiny countries andorra uh, Monaco, uh, San Marino, Liechtenstein. Those are those are the tiny ones. Luxembourg is actually not a micronation. People don't realize that it's it's not. It's, it's still pretty little. It's small. Um, it's got more money in it than the USA, probably. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of these countries end up being. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tax havens. So. I mean, that's that's a bit about me. I could talk about how I do stuff in the travel industry and how I have children and how I do other things but and how I was on the podcast for years that it took us time to mention what it was even called but hopefully uh, my opinions will speak for themselves brilliant uh, oh and, I'm yes I'm good uh, you're good oh, that that's really good um, I'm glad to hear it um, our other podcaster Ethan Chang is based out in Seattle Washington uh, mm-hmm. Ethan uh, who are you and how are you um <laughs> It worked so well last time, I figured I'd do it again. I'm a barista. I live in Seattle. Um, I'm taking uh, classes. I'm, I'm taking uh, community college undergrad really classes as a, as a 32 year old. Um, 
and I guess I'm qualified to be on this show because in 2008, I decided that I would start this podcast that we, I, I guess we did name it once, but I'm just going to like retcon that and pretend that it's the podcast that shan't be named because I think that's more funny. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm drinking a uh, Silver City Scotch Ale right now. I, uh, the, the customary drink that I drink with Joe Genie on podcasts is Scotch. And I didn't want to break out scotch today, so I've got the scotch ale, which is made with peated malt and everything. Uh, it's from Bremerton. Where's Bremerton, Ronnie? I don't even know. It's uh, west of you. Oh, it's, it's, yeah, you can take the ferry there, right? Yeah. Yeah, okay. Ethan, thank you, f- oh. thank, thank you for the reminder, Ethan. I, uh, Wait, Ethan, to... how are you? <laughs> yeah, how are you, Ethan? Um, I'm good. I'm pouring myself a, a, an Ardbeg Islay single scotch, a single malt, malt scotch whiskey, 10, um, and, which Ethan recommended to me, actually. Ethan, Are is you it, really not going to mention uh, Hanoi or anything of the, that nature? I lived in Vietnam. Foreign countries? While I was there, I ate a lot of food and burned through my savings. You have just undersold yourself to, to like the greatest <laughs> Grossi, extent you, you possible. Did, you didn't even mention how many podcast. Ethan has been is a veteran of podcasts about politics. About I guess we could call like the, don't worry about the government. Also, whoa, kind of became whoa, a basketball. What? Oh, you hurt my ears yeah. there. Oh, sorry. Uh, the podcast that must not be named. What uh, <laughs> one sort of became a basketball podcast for a while. We would have like these side sessions about basketball. So we yeah, can say you're a basketball yeah, I've, podcast. I've podcasted about. Uh, uh, U.S. politics, pro wrestling, action film, action cinema—I guess I should say—and uh, and very occasionally basketball and coffee. Oh God! Yeah, let's, let's not talk the about the coffee that podcast. <laughs> yeah. I, yeah, I also I also started a specialty coffee podcast. We will not be naming that because it's not on the internet anymore. Um, well, it was it called Seven. You're Grounded? Oh, uh, it was called oh, Loud but, Cups, which is an amazing uh, name, but but you can't get it anymore. Um, it's, you're you're it grounded bad. is a pretty good one, also. Uh, I don't know about that. <laughs> <laughs> Two out of three people like it, Ethan. So okay. eat shit. All right, I'm I'm glad we've all had. had oh, do no. we curse on this podcast? I forget. Um, well, now we do. Um, I, I I think I think the goal of this podcast is um, slightly less profanity than previous uh, incarnations. Um. Just as much. I mean, scotch. like not not swearing is basically just straight up puritanism to me. So I don't see why you would say that. Like, you know, we won't use it as a crutch, like we never did before. But, you know, why just say not say these arbitrary words? You know what I mean? I I, I agree. And to be honest, there are many topics that will be discussed on this podcast that really you just can't talk about them and not drop a few f bombs. So, mm-hmm. um, which reminds me, I'm glad that what we've about had, what about yeah. n words? Um, ho- hope hopefully not. Um, uh, great. <laughs> I was trying to do a segue. So, uh, yeah, I, I know you were, and I, I'm just refusing to take the bait. Um, <laughs> I, I, the race bait? Yeah. I'm, yes. Yes, I'm refusing to take the race bait. Um, so today's today's topic of of surpassing importance is uh, is actually probably so. So each episode we're gonna do we're gonna basically ask a question oh, and, we're and all talk white. about it. Yeah. Well, yes. Um, you're you're. Spo- I haven't even introduced the topic yet. Um, I just wanted to. They can't see us, so I, I didn't okay. feel like that was a good thing to mention. All tell. white and Jewish, by the way. So a highly diverse and representative uh, podcast. Um, I have a Chinese last name. You do. I have an Italian mm-hmm. last name. Yeah. I, I'm Ronnie Weiss. 
okay. So uh, so each each episode we will talk about a we will ask a question about something going on in the world or something that did go on in the world historically or or just something that there's a good philosophical question and this is definitely in the latter category. It's also probably the least foreign policy e at least directly, thing that will ever be discussed on this podcast. Uh, and this, the, the question that we're going to ask today is, uh, can you change people's hearts? And, and what sort of inspired this discussion was we were having a re- reunion show of the show that must not be named. And the conversation that Hillary Clinton had with Black Lives Matter activists uh, that was caught on video came up, and that quote that Hillary had said, which was, uh, "You can't change hearts; you can't you you change laws," um, was mentioned. And Ethan, I believe uh, your immediate reaction was, if I can make quote directly, "She is so so wrong." Mm-hmm. And I thought that was yeah, really interesting, uh, and and actually relates to foreign policy for reasons we will uh, we will soon discuss. But but Ethan, since you had that immediate and visceral reaction. Uh, I, I, w- I wanted to give you first swing at this apple. Um, why, why do you think that she is wrong? I mean, w- we have to like define in a little bit of a closer way what she means by hearts. Is she talking about like the psyche of a country or of like, it, it, is that what we're talking about? But, but basi- basically, if you have, in this case, a, a racial animus in, in a country or, or a history of racial discrimination against one or several groups... Uh, and you're trying to basically get justice in the society, and you're trying to change the the views among the the majority or the dominant group. Can you actually get them to change their views? I, I don't like think you're that's putting what she meant. Your own, I put, you're putting your own imprint on this. Oh, of course I, don't I think am. That's, that's what she meant. Discussion. That's fine, but I don't I think, think that's what she meant. I think if that's what she meant, then she would be copping to the fact that the government is white. Because, like the the, she she couldn't have been talking about when she said hearts. She couldn't have been talking about the hearts of whites, and then moving straight to laws because that would be her copping to the fact that white people make the laws, and like white people are the rulers, which I believe is true, but she would never say that. She would never cop to that. I think she was talking about, like that whole. I just read through the transcript of that whole exchange that they had and a whole lot of what she was saying was just kind of like campaign pap. It was just like buzz phrases and it was like, she wasn't saying much. She was saying a lot of words and not really saying anything. Um, I feel like it was meant to be pragmatism is really what it was about. Yeah. But it was like pragmatism with the, with the TM above it. You know what I mean? Like, no, she didn't I, say I, much. I, she said way less. Than, she answered way less in her answers than they asked in the questions. And the other thing that I would take exception to is the question of uh, you can't change hearts versus I can't change hearts. You know, there's there's well, a level. Well, you know, she, it was the rhetorical. You know, I, I think she was talking about anyone. No, 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 I still no. Think no, she's no wrong. I, I know she wasn't referring to the person she was speaking to, but I'm saying there's a difference between. And nobody can change hearts versus Hillary Clinton herself is not that type of a person. Well, I think that's what she meant. But but I mean, like, no, I don't, though. I think that's the problem. And I think and I don't want this to, to be the person who devolves this into being too granular about Hillary Clinton herself. But I think that's part of the problem with this, that it was her talking about a general 
pragmatism that she saw as what the world is when it really was purely how she negotiates in the world and what her strengths and weaknesses are. I think that what she was trying to say is that in a civilization, there are built-in biases and built-in inequalities that you cannot get rid of basically like from the the level of each individual person going out you have to legislate those changes and then the, and then they seep into they seep into the individuals from there or something basically that I think she's that it has also, to happen via laws first I think she's also trying to get away from a touchy-feely liberal tree hugger thing and go you know it doesn't matter what people think or feel it matters what you're doing policy wise I think that's a big part of it as well, that she wants to be the sort of centrist person. The reason why I immediately and like instantly reacted just like that, that that's an idiotic thing for her to say and she's completely wrong is that it came off as if she was saying that we're not a product of change, that every civilization on the planet Earth is not a product of change. Every civilization is a product of things that came before. Like there are no ancestral people ancestral in like the in the the grandiose sense on this earth like you know with with perhaps some very tiny exceptions this is this is one of the reasons why i mean my the way i view identity politics and why i immediately consider this a foreign policy issue even though it's ostensibly a domestic one is that a lot of people talk about you know ethno-nationalism or identity politics or, or 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 you know sectarianism and they they assume that it's just elites playing with people in order to advance themselves. It, it is true. I mean, what you're saying is basically these identities change over time, which is true. They're, they're largely invented and the narratives behind them are invented, but they're also very powerful. And, well, and they're, they're invented they, in the identity. The identities are, are invented somewhat, but the experiences are not invented. The experiences are lived. And even when the experiences are based on, like, we can say that race is a, a false construct. Uh, sure. That doesn't falsify the experiences of the people who have lived, well, like, under the label of whatever race that they're labeled as for the last, their lifetime, it, and then exactly. their families going back generations. It, exactly. And, and and that means, like, the, the way I see it is, these identities can change over time. So like, for instance, when my ancestors came here, they were Jews, Poles, Russians, Italians, all of whom were were pretty uniformly treated like dirt at the start of the 20th century. And gradually... That the identity that they were viewed as, as 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 part of the American fabric changed, and so these things do change, but they don't always change, and they certainly don't change at a uniform rate. And that doesn't make the experience. You know, when they came here, they were treated like dirt. Today, I am I am not the subject of of racial discrimination like my or, or or ethnic discrimination or religious discrimination like my ancestors were that has changed but uh for other racial dynamics in in the united states it, it definitely has not changed and these these uh, these dynamics are really powerful like even if they are even if they are fluid over time now and for a very long time uh they are very powerful and they are they are sort of built into the society uh, and, and so i don't know like my immediate reaction to this was 
it started off this really whole in, this, this this really interesting debate about whether you change hearts or laws, but that was kind of beside the point because both sides were kind of saying that you you have to do both. I think Ronnie, you objected to the, this sort of false dichotomy. Yeah, I, I hate false questions where it's well, yeah, the answer, is it of this course or that? the answer is always the same because yeah, it's it's both. Surprise! It's not like a super <laughs> yeah. simple world. But 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 I, I'm actually even a little bit more cynical than that. Like I, I'm not actually sure that you can change hearts at all. I mean, if you do, you definitely. I mean, like if you're if you're going to try to sort of integrate America, for example. Have we defined what that means, though? Because I feel like that's another problem people have with conversations like this. I don't if think I don't talking... think it actually means anything. I think we can define what it means for ourselves and what I would. Think sure, that, but I'm like, just saying within me, the three of us, we need to agree what we're talking about when we're talking about changing hearts. I feel like when you're when a politician is behind a uh, a podium and is talking about the American hearts, they're talking about kind of like the they're basically talking about norms. They're talking about the identity politic, like the normal identity politics that would be like the, the kind of baseline that. Um, but I mean. We also, I guess, are assuming changing hearts is for the better. What about when you're scapegoating, when you're doing Trump things and Hitler things? Uh, yes, I just Trump and Hitler in the same sentence. But I, I mean, if you're talking about how these are the people who are coming and making everything bad for everybody, is that and, and there are folks who get behind that and go, yeah, it's immigrants and that's the, all the illegals and all the money that we're giving to them. Are you changing hearts that way if you're tapping into their fears and and uh, making them go against whomever? I mean, I think if you zoom way out, the, that they're kind of fighting against the grain. And I think like this one little moment in time is like a particularly gross little moment where we get to like listen to Donald Trump speak a whole lot. But I think in the in the larger scheme, that's an aberration. I, I'm not actually sure. I mean, it's interesting. I, I, I hope that the man is not a sign of things to come. But it is, I mean, it, it is true. I mean, so I, I guess my my immediate take on this is when you look at the question of whether hearts can be changed, um, tr- I look at around the world and domestically at attempts to basically frame the issue as one group has too much power and privilege they need to sacrifice it in the name of justice and i look for a power group that voluntarily did that and i exclude the high the highly sui generis case of south africa and i just don't find very many cases of that and so what i'm afraid of what about of, white abolitionists in america but see that, so this is the the thing that makes america great to me is that we define Americanness again unevenly, imperfectly, and it takes us too long. But we define Americanness outward over time. In general, these campaigns have succeeded, and I know I'm about to do the thing that Black Lives Matter activists often very rightly accuse white people of doing all the time. But these campaigns succeed, civil rights campaigns succeed when they define rights outward to everyone when instead of saying you guys surrender your privilege so that we can have justice they frame it instead even if that's morally correct it's much more tactically effective and emotionally effective across a broad swath of people including the people who you're basically trying to convince uh that you're right to um to to frame it in terms of these are rights that should be for that should exist for all americans 
this group of Americans has not been given these rights. It's time that they join everybody else. And that, I think, is a much more powerful and a much more effective way. So if you say, like, these are specific policies that have been uh, disproportionately targeting African Americans in our society, those policies need to be changed. That's a, And if we do this, then that will make a powerful difference. It won't solve race relations in America. It won't mean that automatically, you know, every single person who walks down the street is judged by the content of their character and not the color of their skin. But it will, it will demonstrably change for the better the experience of being, you know, this group or that group in America. If you define it that way, I really think that that's how things happen. That's how things like, like you know, giving women the right to vote or, or abolishing slavery. Like, it, it's 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 how you define it, and then actual policies that take place that basically force change because schools would not desegregate themselves. You know, and actually, but I think that's the problem. You go from this sort of easy, obvious unfairness of slavery to this then pretty much just as easy unfairness of uh, segregation and Jim Crow laws. But now, what are the solutions? And do you even have people agreeing that the uh, cards are stacked stacked against people? You have this sort of blunt instrument that they introduce with affirmative action where people feel like, oh, well, now this is swung the other way and people are being disadvantaged because they're white or whatever else. Um, and, and whether those policies actually do what you're hoping they do. So it, I think it's a lot easier even if it's difficult societally and, and all of that to make it happen, it's easier from a very objective standpoint to make things happen, to say what should change when they're very obvious. But now what's to be done? Um, I think you can get a view of the, uh, basically of progress being made in a way that is not uh, spearheaded by, by laws. If you look at, different minorities in the country that are not racial minorities. I think basically whites have so much power in this country that that's going to be a harder battle in every way. But what about gay people? Like that's, that's changed so much even in my lifetime. But like, what about, what about in the last 80 years? That's changed so much. How is that not people's hearts being changed? Like the, I mean, what laws were changed, I don't know, how many decades ago did most states get rid of their sodomy laws? I feel like that was 30 or 40 years ago. But it's like, it's changed so much within the last 10 years, and there are no legal changes that happened in that time, except at the tail end of that, of that, uh, that scope. Uh, don't Ask, Don't Tell was abolished, which only has to do with the military, which I, you know, I kind of don't consider that part of my culture anyway. Um... And then marriage equality that just happened a few months ago. Like, yeah. but 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 I also I mean it's interesting that uh, I think that's a good example because you, you there get are this, white gay people by the way too. I think that's why that happened the way it did. I I, I mean that you know it, it probably it probably helps with that it's it's sort of like a cross identity uh, uh, spec. But but no, I I think like if you look at at, at the gay rights movement, you have initial discrimination you have a sort of groundswell of support that builds enough of a base of support that laws start getting changed particularly in the courts and and uh and that eventually you know and that catches on and and the the culture changes over time and and becomes more open-minded about these things 
but even then, like you get up to the point where it's like 52% of Americans or 55% of Americans favor gay marriage and like one or two states have done so, have legalized it legislatively. Um, and, and about 20 or 30 states would probably never, ever have done so unless basically forced to. And it's ultimately the decision of the Supreme Court and courts below it that sort of set the precedent for that, uh, that, that made that possible and, and sort of compelled that change in a lot of places where it would never have happened otherwise. I think the, the group of states where that wouldn't have happened otherwise is smaller than you probably think. There are states that you would not think would have done it that did it before it was a federal mandate. Um, and I think it's telling now that, uh, fuck, I'm so happy I don't remember her name. What's the name of the woman? Kim who, Davis. Davis. Yeah, Kim Davis. Oh, man, what a blessing that I don't, yeah, I'm not poisoned with that. I still remember, like, codes for Mike Tyson's you, punch out, but I don't remember her name. You, you, um, you haven't heard the last of her. There's going to be, there's going to be more of oh, this. Oh, no. You haven't heard the last of her. I've heard almost the last, so I, I, uh, read a lot read and listen to a lot of dan savage and i think that he's like in a lot of ways kind of a dickhead but um i do like his take on her which is basically she was in it for the money from the beginning and what's going to happen with her is she made herself she made a name for herself she's famous now she's going to get a book deal she's going to ghostwrite a book and then we're never going to hear from her again like she's not smart or important enough for us to continue hearing from her She's not entertaining. She's not Joe the Plumber level? She's not Joe... Well, no, she is exactly Joe the Plumber level, (laughs) except... uh, I mean, I guess she's a little bit above that because she's there of her own accord, not because she was name-dropped, but she's sub-Palin. Like, Palin at least is inflammatory enough that she's managed to get a TV show and stay in the public eye. Uh, I mean, maybe that's just sexism at work because like foreign foreign policy segue, like foreign foreign policy segue, because this is ostensibly a foreign policy podcast. Do you remember when Joe the plumber went and reported from southern Israel on the Israel Gaza war? Because that was amazing. (laughs) Wait, what? This happened. Fox News sent him to like Stero, like in the south of Israel to report on like the Gaza war. It was incredible. I had never heard of that. <laughs> His reporting That's was exemplary and definitely not one-sided. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, um, no, I, 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 what worries me is basically that a lot of times with these moments of social progress, I mean, I don't know, like I, I sort of, on the one hand, I like it when there's social progress when people are, are given their rights. But on the other hand... What? <laughs> That's a pretty bold statement. <laughs> oh wait, I just realized I never made my point from before. Go for was, it. It's re- really simple. It's that it's that Kim Kim Davis is that her name? Correct. It's that Kim Davis. The, the majority, the vast majority of the coverage about her, unless you look at like weird fringe conservative blogs, is totally negative. And uh, that's I've... so much like. Uh, Go back and watch like Eddie Murphy Delirious and Eddie Murphy Raw, hugely popular uh, uh, comedy specials by Eddie Murphy, where like half the jokes are him just saying that he thinks gay people are just vile and disgusting. And you like that was we've we've moved so far in my lifetime that that's people's hearts being changed. That's exactly what that is. It happened faster because. I guess because there are less gay people than black people, probably in America. Um, is that right? I feel like that's right. 
Um, Most gay people and black people. And yeah, certainly, right. if you're if you're living in dense areas, you can kind of like. If you're a person who's uncomfortable with anything that doesn't look exactly like you, you can basically it like you don't you can't see people being gay. You can see people being black. You can see people being Asian, Hispanic, Native American, whatever. Um, so I have the internet. I could see people being gay if I choose. Well, sure, but <laughs> you know what I mean. Um, yeah, I know. So, what you mean. Um, so that happened, but I, that it was it was an easier battle to win. So it was won, but that was not a legal battle. It's not like we, you know, sometime in like 2004 we made it legal to be gay. That's not what happened. But I think this is the difference between policymakers and your neighbors. Uh, it, it was, as you said, it wasn't a, a legality thing. It was people starting to come out and say, hey, I'm gay. And it's it's the people around them. So Hillary Clinton didn't do this. I, I wonder if that's part of this as well, that you need to. And I mean, let's mention the what's his name? Uh, the, the Syrian kid who died. Um, Ilan. Anyway, the the little toddler. Yeah. Now people in the U.S. are um, paying attention to the Syria thing for a few days because there was something that hit them. So I guess maybe there are three elements. There's whoever's in your immediate life. There's the media, and then there's the politicians, and then obviously the media and the politicians feed into but, each but, other. Yeah, that, that's like a trigger event. Like if you have if you have a groundswell of if you have a problem or something that's happening that that really deserves attention and it's not getting attention, that trigger moment. And you never know when it's going to be or exactly who it's going to be. But something. And it's like Mohammed Bouazizi, right, setting off the Arab Spring. It's like something is going to tip off something that's ready. You know, there were so many tragedies of migrants trying to get to Europe. And this one kid, this one individual story that really resonated with people where you could just just see it, I think, triggered a reaction that had that, that was ready to happen, that needed to happen. But it was just this was the first time that it had the chance that, you know, th- this is what set it off. I'm not sure like that. Those triggers can happen any old like they they can happen at any moment. Uh, But you have to have the sort of groundwork of there being a problem in the first place to to, to tip them off. I think that that trigger can be media based and that trigger can be. um, uh, What did we say that? I think the, the core of that change is always going to be on the smaller scale. It's going to be like. Like Ronnie said, it's going to be you and your neighbors. Like, yeah, that's what but, it is. But, and that's, that's where the tension builds up. The thing that incites the action can be something else. But it, I don't know, it, it feels totally stupid to say this because it's a trite phrase, but it starts at home. Like it always does. It starts in your neighborhood. And that's, it's still that way, even though we're a completely globalized society. Well, and that, so. that's the thing is it, it, it's about removing. I mean, if you want to get things done in, in my book, uh, when I look at identity groups, I see people who are usually uniting, not because, you know, they're like, oh, I'm this group and these other people are evil inherently. It's more a, a sense of sort of, a, you know, a, a sense of the way that they're used to living and then a sense of fear of change or, or of anything threatening. And one of the great things about the gay, gay rights movement was as gay marriage became legal in like Massachusetts, and gays married, the apocalypse didn't happen. Uh, Christians in Massachusetts still got to be Christians. 
and and life went on and and it instead you just saw these like happy couples it was really i mean that really changed um people's perception but it was because what was happening was for the most part and and maybe you know a lot of really really righteous christians might disagree with me or, or or members of other religions but um for the most part it became really obvious that that homosexuality was not a threat to people, you know, like non-homosexuals' way of life in America. The I trick mean, there's it, certainly yeah. a, a, still a minority, a hilarious minority that still thinks that they are a direct threat. But the 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 hard part is when you're dealing with larger identity groups, like in America, where we're having demographic change. Like America is great because, as I said, we define our identity outwards, but. Uh, Places where d- demography has changed to the point that the dominant electoral power group has subsequently become a minority power group and could no longer rely on elections in order to maintain their their control over systems that they had previously enjoyed. Like, I'm not. I don't think that's. You know, I I, I think America is. It has the institutions and the history and and, and the ideology as a nation that we can avoid this. But that's how civil wars happen. Like that's what tipped off Lebanon. That's what tipped off Cote d'Ivoire. Like it's re- like it's really dangerous, and and that's why you're seeing this freakish backlash to to migrants coming from Syria and Europe. Even though these migrants account for something like I think uh, I think Junker said it was like zero point one one percent of the entire EU population, and most of them wouldn't even become citizens anyway. Anyway, but you get the idea. Like the idea, the threat of demographic change over over identity groups is destabilizing and that's that's that sounds just hideous but it's all i mean i'm not even thinking about it in normative terms just analytical ones like that's that's how identity groups can predictably react when they feel under threat so my thing is you have to somehow advance the cause of people who have faced injustice without threatening power groups or or at least making them feel that way and that sucks that you have to so do that. So what should we have done in a place, or could be done, we, anybody, in a place like Syria where you have minority rule, or even Iraq, uh, other than a coalition of the willing? That's one of, I mean, that's one of the reasons why the Iraq war was so terrible and why the Syrian civil war was almost inevitably bad and why Rwanda has had multiple genocides and Burundi has had multiple genocides. It's really, and why, you know, South Africa became the cause celeb of, you know, generations. It, it's really toxic to have a, a small minority group having that kind of power. If you have a group that's 15 to 30% of the population, like, you know, South African, white South Africans, or uh, I think Sunni Arabs counted for something like 30, low 30s percent in in Iraq. Alawites are 13% in Syria. Um, Those groups, I mean, and this is one of the things about changing people's minds and hearts. Like your average Alawite person is is probably not like Sunnis, but... Uh, as far as getting a job for their themselves, their families, uh, you know, having access to, to, you know, opportunity in the society or whatever, um, it's scary to think of what will happen if the Assad regime falls, because then all of a sudden there's going to be a majoritarian Sunni takeover. And those Sunni Arabs are going to be pissed off because they've been stomped on for the last 30 to 40 years. And that's scary. And so, like, even though the people, the, the individual people are not 
horrible people or like deeply racist or xenophobic or, or, or sectarianist or whatever. Um, the, the structure of the society is such that it encourages them to be terrible to each other. It's almost impossible to imagine a dictator like it's like people say, you know, Assad is so evil because he's done this and he's done these terrible things. It's, it's difficult to imagine someone in his position doing anything else. You know, if Basil al-Assad hadn't died in a car crash in 94 and he was the dictator of the country, he'd be doing the same stuff. Like, like it's, it's difficult to imagine because otherwise, if they lose, they lose everything. And that's what makes Syria so but is this only about I, Is this only about ethnicity, race, and things like that? Whenever you have any sort of dictatorship and corruption and uh, one-party rule or whatever else, won't all these things inevitably happen? Sure. I mean, you could say the same thing is kind of happening in North Korea, where you know a lot of the power elites don't want the regime to end because they're doing great and everyone else is doing terribly. Um, but like it, like in North Korea, I don't know, like I don't know how else to say this. If you work hard and know the right people in North Korea, you too can become one of the two percent of the population that isn't starving. Um, whereas in Syria, I mean, you know, it's not like it's completely impossible to get by if you're not an Alawite, but. The you, small minority groups control almost every aspect of the country. And it's also a country where if you control the state, you control everything because that's a, such a huge part of the economy, the secret service, the you know the military, government jobs, control of oil, control of the commanding heights of the economy. It's all tied up within, and, and Iraq was the same way. Um, so basically, it's like whoever controls the government and the oil revenues controls everything. And so an election is basically a revolution, and that's why Iraq couldn't really have one of those without having a civil war. And it's, it's, it's why Syria can't either. Um, there isn't a good solution except either one side wins or both sides ethnically cleanse each other into, into like fiefdoms and those become new countries. Or they fight it out for a really long time and realize that they just can't keep doing this anymore and want to reach a settlement. And we're nowhere near any of these right now. It sucks. Would you say that in terms of talking about America, that we're like closer to that type of situation on an underlying level than we think, or that there are fundamental differences between what we are and what that is? I hope the latter. Um, I think that that um, what you're seeing with someone like Donald Trump, and he's not a lot. I mean, Ezra Klein has made this, this argument really well in, in Vox, that Trump is kind of like a lot of right-wing parties that you're seeing in Europe now and across the OECD where he's sort of like, let's keep the social safety net. He's actually pretty liberal in terms of government spending. He just doesn't want to share it with, you know, them foreigners. Um, and I think that's kind of, that is a not surprising reaction to changing demography in America. I think that America, because of who we are and because of our capacity for, you know, because we're a nation of immigrants and all of this, uh, and because we're a wealthy country, and because not all, you know, like, not everything is tied up in who gets government jobs. You know, it's not a patronage network mm-hmm. like like Kosovo is or, or, or Serbia. Um, I think that we have the the structural capacity to withstand demographic upheaval we've done it before and and i think we will as well and i think we will ultimately define americanness outward but i'm it's not going to be easy and i think it's really important that we define it outward instead of saying like in 2042 you know there's going to be a reckoning (laughs) regardless of whether there's a reckoning would be just you know it's it's kind of Mm -hmm. like reading 
um, Ta-Nehisi Coates's The Case for Reparations. It's really, morally, it's really well argued. It's difficult to dispute. It's also never going to happen. So, like, defining it in terms of things that actually work ethno-nationalistically, given the limitations of, of humankind, um, that, to me, that's the way to go. That's the way that we're going to, uh, you know, make America a, a tolerant and globalistic and yeah, make America great again. Yeah. Just like it was back I, in the day when like, you know, <laughs> I think I realized that there like about five minutes ago that there was something important, uh, that we didn't touch on when we were trying to define what it means to change American hearts. Um, does that mean that you have to change the beliefs of somebody like of one individual person? What if you change how that person's what the, what that person's children believe? Is that changing people's hearts? Are you referring to education? I mean, education, but also like the education that happens when you're just like not necessarily in school, but just growing up in the world and growing up increasingly exposed to other cultural groups, which more and more people have access to now. I, um, I think that's great, but it's also it's really I mean you know, that's why affirmative action in universities is really good. Like, you know, my school wasn't particularly diverse, but I was really glad that I I met people from different backgrounds because it broadened my perspective. They made me think about things that I wouldn't have thought of otherwise, just because I grew up in a very, you know, uh, fairly, you know, homogenous little corner of Evanston, Illinois, which is itself unusually diverse um, as far as suburbs go. Diverse, but... but extremely segregated. Exactly. Like most, I mean, like you, we both went yeah. to a high school that had like a black cafeteria. They would never call it that. It wasn't labeled that anyone could go there. Anyone could go to any of the cafeterias, but it for sure had a black cafeteria. Yeah. Um, and, but I mean like what makes Evanston's, spe- but was that structures or was that the students self segregating? That was the students self-segregating for the most part. And it was also the students yeah. self-segregating, but it was, it was, the students self-segregating based upon biases that biases that they held that dated back to that are that were just basically modern Jim Crow. Like the city itself is completely segregated. Um, there, there's actually Jim a Crow, railroad track that, that runs down the middle of Evanston, and it's basically like white people on one side of the railroad tracks and everybody else on the other side of the railroad tracks. Yeah, it's really, it's really Evanston, bad. It's like when I think of the other side of those tracks, I think of mostly like. Orthodox Jews and Middle Eastern people, but uh, if we're talking about the same tracks, maybe we're not talking about the same tracks. Uh, we should it, talk about the specific uh, cross streets of these Evanston train tracks. Yeah, can this podcast just be about Evanston, Illinois? Oh my god! I mean, actually, <laughs> I, I think uh, inevitably this foreign policy podcast is just going to get more and more specific. All politics is local, even 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 foreign affairs, <laughs> even um, foreign politics. But no, I mean, it, it's it's shocking. Like you you look at you look at. Um, there were, there were these demographic maps that have been making the rounds on the internet um, that I just saw that where you, it's just every person by, you know, where every single person lives, everybody's a dot and in the, the dot is colored in by race. And you look at a place like Detroit and it's like eight mile road. Everyone North of eight mile road is white. Everyone South of eight mile road is black. And, and most cities in America are like for the Chinese. It's, it's, it's shocking. Um, yeah. But that how, th- to me, that is just Jim Crow. It's not officially on the books as a law anymore, and it hasn't for a long time. It hasn't been for a long time. But that's those forces still exist. They exist. Um, I mean, it's, it's like you were saying, the government doesn't have the level of p- power here that it does in a place like Syria. 
um, because private well, business has actually, a lot of power Actually, I, I would say our, power, our government has more power. Go, Syria, the Syrian well, I mean, government, our government has more power, right but, right but, but I don't know. I don't know. Maybe there's a better way to to word that let, let me like, let me actually give you an, an, an example like like in singapore i was just reading about this singapore in the, the like the 60s basically enforced like like the kind of you know busing and and housing integration that that we tried to do and basically failed because people literally were like we'll move to an entirely different city just to avoid doing this um Singapore, because it's an autocracy and it's a tiny little city, basically mandated this. So it's various different communities because it's a very polyglot city. Um, we're basically forced to live Four together. Four official languages. And, and, it basic, and that basically worked. Like that was an example of policy working. And that's nice if you're Lee Kuan Yew and you control a city, city state like, you know, like, you know, you're basically like God and you can do whatever you want. Um, but, but in America, you can't do that. Um, and so it's right, like you can only... We don't have anyone yeah. who's like that. And... Which is why, even though we uh, took Jim Crow off the books decades ago, that stuff can still persist because it persists in white parents teach that to their kids. Um, employers practice that. You know, um, people people who are deciding who to get uh, bank officers who are deciding who to grant loans to practice that. Then they practice that even without necessarily knowing. I'm sure that a lot of liberal white parents who you know only really talk like only really reference racist ideas when telling their children how not to think practice that because that's part of what white america is um which is why getting rid of jim crow when we did did not actually get rid of jim crow and that's why evanston is the way it is and a whole bunch of american towns are the way they are well, that's a that's a that's a total bummer. No, I mean it's like I, I live in you know I, I live in Washington D.C. and like the euphemisms people use for gentrification, like oh, it's a much safer neighborhood now. You know, it's much like this that you know like it's, yeah. There's a lot of growth. Like it's pretty uh, appalling, I, actually. I try not to like engage with people. I'll engage with people on the internet because that's fun to get someone like super heated on Facebook <laughs> and then block them. <laughs> Um, but, uh, like in real life, I try not to engage, but if somebody's like, they hear like where I live or where someone else lives, like, oh, I heard that's like a sketch neighborhood or like, oh, I heard, you know, like I heard it's pretty ghetto there. People don't really say ghetto. We've changed hearts. Like people who are around me. No, we've changed words. We haven't changed changed words, but people around me know that they're not fucking allowed to say ghetto. Um, (laughs) But yeah, yes, and words do have power. And if they say the other words, then I'll drill into them about that too. But like those, all those forces still exist, basically. And I think you can fight against that as a something else that I should have mentioned, like right in the beginning of the show when, when we drew attention to the fact that we're three white people who I, I would also like to add were probably have a we probably have a 95 to 99 percent white audience right now um technically we have no audience because this is the very first episode (laughs) well yeah but you know you know what i mean um by by if anybody listens to it the chances of them being white are 95 out of 100 there is still value in white people getting together to talk with other white people about race um should they be wearing white outfits? Probably not. Um, <laughs> they could be drinking like we are. Well, you're, you're not drinking, but no. 
that like there are community organizations in every big city that are set up specifically for that for for anti-racist whites to get together and talk about what they can do as white people uh to help the anti-racist cause and to step the fuck out of the way and make room for black people um at the forefronts of those movements and that's those are conversations that often in those i mean in those organizations they by definition don't include back black people and they shouldn't because that's white shit like that's that's white people's shit to figure out to how what their place is as a race in those conversations so i think that it that it, there is a value for us talking about this even though we're three white jews why do you call three white jews that's a pretty good name if <laughs> Whether or not Ethan and I ever come back on the show, I think that still is a, is a good time. I was going to say, <laughs> <laughs> this would distinguish us from all other podcasts. Um, <laughs> I, um, uh, th- th- no uh, Jews in podcasting. I, I, nope. um, How about that one? How about no Jews in podcasting? No, Ju- no Jews in podcasting? That's, that's, that's great. Um, I, I think that uh, this is actually a good play. I, I was hoping to keep each of these... Sh- podcasts to half an hour but uh for this topic you're never gonna do with that. us uh there's no there's no chance i mean we with, with, with the don't worry podcast i mean some of those things went three the hours what? remember what? when we what? said at the beginning of the podcast which shan't be named that we were gonna try to shoot for 15 to 20 minutes and then like did by, that for a couple episodes by like episode 10 we were like up to two hours so. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah well you know um uh, just wait till just wait till this podcast starts going into like Israel Palestine stuff. We'll see how how close to thirty minutes we can keep that. Um, it has been a pleasure to have both of you on the podcast. Uh, do either of you do have? We get, do, do we get to like drop final thought bombs? Okay, fine. Final thought bombs. Oh wait, I have to go first. Shit. Yeah. Well, you okay. Your idea. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'll go first. Um, yeah. Going since I don't follow anything that has to do with Syria. Because I am a humble barista. Um, God damn! <laughs> I, I would say that are you, are going you back, positioning going, yourself going back like to the original, the original Hillary Clinton conceit of the show, I would say that the like the way that you change hearts is you you do what you can to foster a society through laws and through technology and through friendship and through speaking up when you know that something is is happening it's fucked up to make sure that people who are still in their formative years are exposed to ideas that maybe the previous generation was not and that's why um like i was saying before if you look at uh, the the gay minority has like that turnaround has been easier than than racial minorities like the turnarounds for the racial minorities have taken place in this country and i do think that's because white people basically control lawmaking and like the like the status quo in this country and there are a whole lot of white gay people but that is an example of people's hearts being changed like the average young person feels differently about those issues than the average young people did a generation ago. And they, those people feel differently than people did a generation before that and a generation before that. That's a slower process with race. Uh, and I think it's, it's slower both because, well, 
I, the main reason why it's slower, I would say, is because we're not built on uh, persecution of gays. We are built as a country on persecution of blacks. Um, so for the people in power, it's a much more painful issue to be able to look at that in the face than it is to be able to look at anti-gay discrimination in the face. But I think those changes can happen. I think they are happening. Um, and there's all like other like stickier issues like socialism. Bernie Sanders is doing pretty, I mean, who knows what's going to have happened when somebody listens to this podcast two years from now, but like right now it looks like Bernie Sanders has a chance in the early primaries and Bernie Sanders says that he's a socialist. Like he uses that word. And 10 years ago, if you were to self describe as that, like that's the, that's the end, like instantly the end of your, your campaign. And that's just not true anymore. Things change. Um, and I think if you just exist in the Washington bubble for decades and decades and decades, like the Clintons and actually like Bernie Sanders, although, you know, he has a different perspective for some reason, you can be blind to the idea that things change without you doing anything like things change on a community level and those changes ripple out and they change how people react to different situations like decade after decade and so that was a fraud wrong. cluster bomb yeah that sure. was de- yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my god <laughs> thought, th- unlike actual cluster bombs thought cluster bombs are not there's no convention against cl- thought cluster bombs so you know right, go yeah. forth young man um uh I, I will i will i guess my my thought bomb is uh Basically, that the older I get, the more, and I think my UN experience really taught me this, just how people define narratives in ways that are really powerful, really compelling, even accurate, um, and certainly morally sound, but also directly irreconcilable with other people's narratives. So uh, I think the older I get, the more I, I have, a, I feel like I have a sense of, or at least I try to have a sense of empathy for everyone involved. The one thing that really struck me about these, these sort of, flare-ups where you had Black Lives Matter activists confronting Bernie Sanders' campaign and confronting Hillary Clinton uh, was that the more I read about it, the more I listened to everyone involved, the more I understood exactly why everyone was behaving exactly the way that they were behaving. And I was like, well, if I was in that position, I would do that too. And if I was in that position, I would do that too. And it's worth noting, I mean, Hillary, in her comments and in her subsequent comments, emphasized the importance of social activism and Black Lives Matter, for their part, about two days after that that video aired that launched this whole conversation, um, came out with a very specific set of policy proposals of things they wanted to have done. So I, th- I think, uh, honestly, it's like the best thing to do in the world is to just try to listen to people wherever they're coming from and from as many different places as possible. But I would that say was like that, a thought taser. I would say that... that in, in this situation, Bernie Sanders probably did a better listening, a better job listening than Hillary Clinton. And I think, in, in you know, certainly the that first incident where I forget where he was speaking, but the, the first time he was interrupted by Black Lives Matter, he did not handle that well. He completely bungled that. But the second time where he basically said, I'm going to stop talking and, and cede control. Was it of, Phoenix? 
I no, it was the, it was the Netroots Nation thing. I can't remember where. Yeah, that was the first time, and that was a huge disaster because the guy he was speaking with pulled an All Lives Matter, and I feel like that is just like one on one level shit. I don't need to talk about why that's wrong on this show. Like, if anyone doesn't understand how that is just institutional racism, then just like this is not my podcast, so I could say just fucking stop listening. Um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> There we go. I would say Inclusive that the second empathy. time, for the most part, like like if you if you just kind of like wipe clean the 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 stuff that he said that were obviously he was just like frustrated and fired up like everyone was in that situation. He essentially did the right thing, which was to shut the fuck up. Like he people whose voice are relevant who don't usually get to share their voice and have their voice you know heard by white people were speaking and he said basically all right i'm out and and they got a platform and that was so helpful to their group and you could say that the campaign zero that they that they uh published was a reaction specifically to what hillary clinton said but the profile that they have in the country now is a result of that initial altercation and it just wouldn't be what it was if they had, you know, if they had gone the route that I think most politicians' teams would and most organizers of a rally would or would have. And just people are trying to bust into this rally where a presidential campaign is making a speech, have them arrested. That's what you do. That's the safe thing to do. And that's not what he did. I think that was the right thing for him to do. And that's, like, such a huge difference between how he reacted to it. And even though it was a conversation with Hillary and not one of Hillary's rallies being interrupted. It was just, it's it's the right and the wrong way, or it's it's a mostly right and mostly wrong way to deal with that situation, I think. Ronnie, you have not offered a truth bomb. I, okay, here's mine. So there's a fundamental misunderstanding of what the American dream is. Uh, there's this idea that it means that there's this idea <laughs> that it means that everybody there's this idea that it means that everybody uh, should be or can be successful and that's not and that's fine if we want to adjust it but the idea of the American dream is the idea that anybody can be successful if they try if they work hard etc not that we will all have success um the problem with that is this idea that all men are created equal and all these sorts of things where there's an implication that everybody has been given an even shot. Um, we've mentioned race a lot over this topic, but class, yes, it relates to race, but there are certainly races other than black and there are certainly poor white people who are not getting a shot at things. Um, and I think overall the idea that everybody has an equal chance to be successful in this country is flawed at best and a complete bullshit lie, I guess, in reality. So for us to be able to even come close to what the American dream is or a revised version where everybody can have some level of happiness, uh, we need to really accept the inequality that exists out there and work together in some fashion to address it. Uh, I, I think, as I've said a couple of times, though, that all sounds nice, but how you do that 
it becomes very tough. It's not just let everybody have access to water fountains or don't let people be slaves or let everybody vote. Uh, there's a lot of uh, ways that uh, people instill fear uh, and make it so that there's a, a, an easy reason to not allow everybody the same chances in a variety of ways. And I, until... There's a greater understanding of history. I mean, we've talked about housing and Jim Crow and how how neighborhoods are segregated. I wasn't even aware as to the institutionalized racism in the early 20th century when it came to home loans and when it came to to destroying things. I just saw a thing recently um, about how in Central Park there were uh, these sort of black areas um, before it became Central Park, that they just got rid of these communities. Uh, these are things that I'd never heard about, and they certainly impact people's lives redlining? Today. What's up? You're talking about redlining? Like- uh, yeah, that was the first part. Okay. But the, the second part was, uh, I mean, we're talking about the 19th century, which, I mean, that was, that was a really, I, I'd never heard of anything like that. I mean, I had always pictured basically uptown Manhattan being farmland and stuff and not picturing the people who owned that farmland and being displaced from it. So, but yeah, um, I, all those things impact stuff today and make it so school districts are unfair. And it, it just, it, until we acknowledge that those things have happened and that 2015 is not its own year, but it is a result of a succession of years. We're not going to be honest and we're not going to give people that equal opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, thank you for listening to this podcast. It's been, it's been a pleasure. I, I am proud that we managed to get through an hour without saying something. At least I, I, I'm not aware that I said anything that I deeply regret, and it's really hard to talk about this stuff. <laughs> you, so you realize you could edit things, right? I, mean, I know. Has anybody explained that to you about the whole podcast? Like I, not I doing can the live? edit, but perhaps I am too lazy to edit. Um, <laughs> I would have regretted doing my Dusty Rhodes impression, which I almost interrupted Ronnie to do when he said that he had to talk about the American Dream. Oh, I, I, I wouldn't have mind <laughs> wrestling reference. Yeah. Neither of you would have been able to properly gauge how bad it was. I can't do it because I can't do the lisp. So. Well, okay. you can save it and, for And we will, we will another... end this podcast on a, on a, non, uh, a, a non-impression. Uh, guys, final plugs. Uh, where, can, where can you be found <laughs> wow, on the internet? A... <laughs> Ronnie, you, act, you actually have an internet presence. Uh, where can you be found I on the internet? I do have an internet presence. I mean, if you know how to spell my name, you could find me. Ronnie, R-O-N-I, Weiss, W-E-I-S-S. I'm on Twitter. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram. I have a blog that I've actually restarted blogging on. Sweet. Um, yeah, yeah. So find me, reach out, say hi. Before I tell people how to spell my name, can I ask you, Ronnie, when, when you lived in Seattle or the Seattle metro area, did you ever go yep. to Uwajamaya? Oh, I don't know okay, if so I that's, ever that's, ended up going that's, there. That's like a not really. I mean, you didn't go yeah. there regularly. No, not regularly. At the checkout, sure. when I always, when I'm at the quick check oh, yeah, there. Yeah, yeah, I think I've, yeah, not regularly though. But uh, so when I'm at the quick check there, which I was just at today, there's uh, these little packages of like artificially hot red sausages um, called Yuck. called Lil Roni bites, oh like L I L apostrophe R O N I. I was wondering bites. where we were going with just, this. I think of you every time. Oh, that's very there's sweet. Just, there's just a little bite of you every do you, time do you actually, at the register. Do you buy these and eat them? 
I've never actually bought them. Okay. Well, that's And good. I wouldn't, I would be lying if, if I didn't, like, cop to that, like, part of the reason why I've never bought them is that I would think it's weird because your name is on it. It's like so I, I had no reason to bring this up, and this is I, 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 the only reason I'm bringing it up at this point is because Joe has tried to end this show so many times, and I just feel like shit. I got his parade. Um, my dad's a judge uh, in Snohomish County, the the county north of where Seattle is, mm-hmm. and apparently he had um, a defendant come into his courtroom named Ronnie R O N N I E Weiss, and uh, was a little weirded out by that. So yeah. There I mean, I assume other, that's there much are more other common. Ronnies out there. R-O-N-I is usually a, wim- a woman's name, right? Yes, the only other Ronnie Weisses you will find are Israeli women. Mm-hmm. Well, my name is Ethan Chang. That's E-T-H-A-N-C-H-E-N-G. I have a Chinese dad, so technically I'm not 100% white, although I often in conversations like this just identify as totally white because I believe that uh, I get like 99% of what there is to get of white privilege. But I'm on Twitter, Ethan Chang. I, uh, I tweet approximately like maybe one to two tweets a week. It's usually about pro wrestling or about basketball. Um, but, you know, that may change. Who knows? Like you can kind of speculatively follow me and maybe eventually in several months I will tweet something that you think is interesting. Wow. Pro ba- basketball yeah. is the you, next you global game. You have yourself yeah. like crazy mm-hmm. you're um, the joe biden of this race i'm the joe the plumber hey. um, speaking of joe the plumber, I, I am joe. i am joe genie i um you can find me uh online and you can the same place you can find this podcast joe that's j-o-e-g-e-n-i.com i've got blogs i've got my academic papers and research on there i've got my <laughs> musical projects i've got my djing and uh, all kinds of cool stuff, and this podcast. So again, JoeGenie.com. And these, uh, um, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, uh, Ethan, Ronnie. Thanks for being on the podcast for its inaugural episode. And uh, uh, this is the Ambassadors at Large signing out uh, for episode one. Not in the Star Wars way, but like in the new a New Hope sort of way. We're like a New Hope. This for is or this are policy podcast. Or these are. These are the voyages of ambassadors at large. I don't fucking know. (laughs) We're done. Thank you very much for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye-bye. American dream, dusty roads, son of a plumber who grew up to be so sweet. (laughs) Straight to your ears, daddy.